I'm going to share something this morning. Um, last time I, I spoke, <clears throat> I let slip that my wife is a really big fan of um, Raffaello chocolates, you know, the little ones. And since then, many, many kind people have given her gifts of Raffaello chocolates. So she's given me a list of things to mention this morning that she likes. But, um, she really likes those... Um, she, she's not actually here this morning, by the way. Um, she's at a GP event. Um, but yeah, she, she does really like those uh, Eat Natural bars, the apricot ones, the, the orange ones. So if you're ever stuck for a gift of what to give her, that'll go down very well. Um, they're great because they make you think you're being healthy, but you're not actually being healthy. They're, they're quite unhealthy. Um, I want to talk from a, a couple of passages this morning. They're right at the beginning and the end of Jesus' ministry. And... As I kind of read them, I just feel like there's some interesting things that we can draw for us as a community. Um, it's something God's kind of impressed on me afresh recently, but I don't think it's particularly new to us. I don't think it's particularly, you know, brand new. Um, I think it's something quite foundational. But it's just hit, hit me really strongly, um, and I kind of want to share it. I love Sunday mornings. I love this, what we're doing right now. Genuinely, I, I love being here and worshipping God with, with all of you guys. Um, it's not, you know, I'm not here out of habit or just because I've always done it. I love these times. Um, thank you, Heather. <laughs> Makes me feel so, so good. Um, and, you know, because there's so many of us, we have to be really organised to actually make this happen. You know, actually have these times where we all meet together, you know, Sunday mornings or... You know, some of us go to youth, uh, some of us go to dev groups, development groups, or all different things that we do as a community. It takes quite a lot of organisation. We can't just be spontaneous. Um, and I, I think this is an important part of what church is, you know, these times when we're deliberate about being together. Um, but I think there's something that a lot of us know deep down, but it's easy to forget from time to time, which is that this is an important part of what church is, being deliberate, meeting together, serving. But church can't be reduced to... It's an important part of what church is, but church can't be reduced to this. Because this is only a small fraction of our lives, right? Um, I did some maths um, recently. I tried to work out what actual percentage of, of, our, of our lives, of our year, we spend in these kind of deliberate, organised times. And I was quite surprised if you add up, like throughout the year, kind of, I don't know, three hours on a Sunday morning and maybe three hours a group in the week or you're serving, doing something, um, add up all of these hours and then extrapolate it across the whole, whole year, it actually comes to only 5% of our lives is spent in kind of an organized way like this. And 95% is doing other things, it's being elsewhere. Um, so, so what else are we doing? We're, we're in school. Uh, we're in work. We might be on a crowded central line train during our commute or dropping off kids at school. We might be at home. We might be asleep. Preparing meals, eating meals, shopping, making cuts of tea, uh, doing DIY, um, cleaning, washing up, all of these different things. Um, and it may seem obvious, but 
I can often fall in the trap of thinking that being a follower of Jesus concerns what happens here when actually Jesus wants to break out into the 95% of my life. I, I kind of know it in my mind, but I still catch myself thinking that it's you know, following him and obeying him is about what happens here and, and you know, all the great times we have in worship and going out for prayer at the end and all that kind of thing. But I've just felt him impress on me again really freshly um, that he wants to break into the 95%, into everything else that we do. Um, so let's look at this first passage. Um, it's Luke 5, 1 to 11. We'll read it. Um, it's the bit when Jesus calls his disciples, um, and particularly when, when he calls Peter. So on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they'd done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter... Where are we? When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land... They left everything and followed him. Quite a well-known story, and you know, I'm sure there's loads of stuff that can be said about it. But a few things jumped out to me when I read it again recently. The first thing is, if we go back to the beginning, it starts off in, in a typical kind of sermon context, if you like. Jesus is teaching, and there's a massive crowd kind of gathering around to hear him. Um, it's kind of a sort of 5% context that it starts off in. Um, but it's interesting that the significant characters of the story, the disciples, Peter, James and John, they're not actually in the sermon at this point. Um, they're off to the side. They're, they're washing their nets. So it's like Jesus is talking. He's, he's giving this message and loads of people are crowding around. And off in the kind of periphery of his vision, there's these guys out of their boats kind of washing their nets. They just come in from a, a night's fishing and that's where they are. And it's almost like Jesus wants to get their attention. And he looks over and he sees Peter. But I love the way that Jesus gets his attention. He doesn't kind of call over to him or like encourage him to join in the sermon. He gets into his boat. Which I think is quite, quite crafty and quite, quite interesting by Jesus. Um, he forces the issue. He's like, oh, can, I, can I borrow this? And kind of gets into it. And suddenly Peter's a part of what, what's going on. And then so he's teaching, he's in the lake, he's in the boat, he's teaching. Um, and the next thing Jesus does is also really, really interesting. He starts speaking into Peter's 95%. He starts 
speaking into his day job, into his fishing. And we take this for granted. It's a very well-known story. Um, but it's actually quite, quite radical when you think about it. Peter's not a follower at this point. He's not a follower of Jesus. There's loads of stuff in his life that needs sorting out. You know, there's probably sin. There's probably stuff he's struggling with. But Jesus doesn't go in and start giving kind of moral lessons or unpacking deep sort of spiritual principles. He actually gives him job advice, when you think about it. <laughs> uh, put out your nets for another catch. It's interesting. Um, I work in a coffee shop, and um, we've just hired a new head of coffee. And most people that know me think I know a lot about coffee. Okay? Mo- most of you guys would probably say, Jeremy, oh, you know, he, he knows a fair bit about coffee. And I, I like coffee. I do, do like coffee. But I don't know as much as this new guy that we've hired as the new head of coffee. In fact, in the world of coffee, I know pretty much nothing. That might surprise you. But I'm like a complete novice. I, I just know a tiny, tiny bit. And this guy that we've hired, he knows a lot about coffee. And every morning, um, he comes in and he, you know, he does what we call dialing in the machine and he adjusts it and he sets the recipe for the day to get the perfect sweet tasting cup of coffee. And sometimes he'll come up to me and he'll uh, give me the, the shot that he's pulled and be like, can you taste that? You know, what do you think? And I kind of, hmm, taste it. What do you think? You know, I, I'm just kind of almost nervous to give my opinion because this guy knows so much about coffee. and it's, you know, I'd rather just let him get on and do his job because I know he knows what he's doing. I find it interesting that when we're in the presence of someone who's an expert on something, well, at least for me, I just like to kind of you know, let them be an expert on that thing. I'm, there's reluctance to actually wade in and start giving my advice. But in a strange way, that's actually what Jesus is doing. Peter is an expert at fishing. It's the one thing that he knows more than anybody about. And he, he knows more about fishing than he knows about anything else. And Jesus comes in and starts giving advice. My wife's a GP. I wouldn't consider going into her surgery and start giving her advice about what medicines to give people or, or correcting what she's doing. I just wouldn't. But Jesus says, cast your net again. And Peter's like... But master, we, we toiled all night. We've already done this. You know, It's much better fishing at night anyway. You can't really catch anything in the day because all the fish are hiding. So Jesus is speaking into Peter's 95% into his day job. But here's the fourth interesting point that I want to draw from the story. Peter actually obeys. He didn't have to. Actually, at the time that this happened in, in Palestine, there was a very kind of strict like social economic pecking order, and um, Jesus was a carpenter, and they were actually considered below kind of fishermen in the pecking order. You know, Peter was like a businessman, he had like, you know, servants, and they were part of a fishing syndicate, and he was there with his family, they're all doing it together. And here's this, this carpenter from Nazareth starting giving advice about fishing. He didn't really have to take that advice, but he did. He humbled himself and said, yeah, I'm going to do that, I'm going to cast my net again. Which leads to the final point, which is that on the other side of Peter's obedience is a miracle, a prophetic miracle, that would change the course of Peter's life. It would set him on a journey from being a fisher of fish to a fisher of people. It also got to his heart. It caused him to break down and say, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. 
There was a conviction that came through it. And it produced a wholeheartedness. He left everything and followed Jesus, and so did his partners, his fishing partners. I think it's really significant that Jesus' calling of his disciples, it doesn't concern some big spiritual thing, but the entryway into that calling, the entryway into that invitation, is through Jesus speaking into the day-to-day of their lives, into their day job. And I wonder, why would God include this unusual story as the entryway into their ministry? I think there's a clue in this story as to what it really means to be Jesus' disciple. See, all of us are on a journey with God. We're all on a, a journey, a pilgrimage. You know, we're, we're moving. We're going from faith to faith, glory to glory. God's working stuff out in our lives. And just like for Peter, God has a destiny for every single one of us. He has a plan for every single one of our lives. Paul says that we have the good works that God has prepared for us to do in advance. And that's true for all of us. But there's a shaping that we need on the journey. There's a healing that we need to get from where we are now to where God has for us to be. A bit like Laura was sharing earlier. She was here, and God had this vision for her all the way over here. But there was a journey that she needed to walk to get there. There was a healing process that he was going to lead her through. And that can be quite a long journey for people. You know, we have, there's stuff that God has for us to do, but we have restrictions, things that are kind of holding us back from doing it. Who's ever experienced that kind of restriction where you know there's something that God is calling you to do, there's something he's put on your heart or there's a passion, but you just find all of these fears, these anxieties, the same old issues that you keep bumping into again and again. I've been there. I've been in that place where it just feels like I'm in a, an enclosed space and I, there's no way out. So we're on a journey of healing. But again, I think we can often package off that, that healing, that transformation, into the 5% moments of our lives, the church services, going up for prayer, the things that are organized and deliberate. And don't get me wrong, God can do amazing stuff in these times. I really, really believe that. But I feel God is reminding us this morning that the real destiny-setting moments of our lives, where God really shifts things, happen in the moments of obedience, the decisions we make in the 95%. It may seem unspiritual. It may seem mundane. It may seem very ordinary. Cast your net again on the other side. You may think, why, why is God asking me to do this? This just seems so, so normal and unspiritual. But on the other side of those decisions are miracles that set the trajectory of our lives. So I want to unpack a bit. How do we do this? How do we let God into our our 95%? How do we let Jesus into our 95%? And there's three keys I want to highlight this morning. Um, The first one is be faithful in the small things. So Paul says in Colossians, whatever you do, do it faithfully as unto the Lord and not unto men. So whatever it is, whatever makes up your 95%, whatever commitments you've made or job that you're doing or act of service, we need to realize that when we're doing it, we're not doing it for people. I mean, we are doing it for people. But really, it's received by Jesus as an act of love towards him. And he invites us to be faithful in doing that. I love thinking about uh, King David. Um, We remember him as like a king over Israel, important guy. 
But that's not where he started. Um, in fact, he had very, very humble beginnings. Um, the author Mike Bickle puts it like this. We like to imagine David sitting in the shade on the hillside with lush green grass and sheep gathered around him like fluffy cotton balls. We think of him as a modern farm boy admiring the sky with a stalk of hay between his teeth. But that's not how the story went. David lived for several years in what amounted to solitary confinement in a desert environment. The flock that he was caring for, he was a shepherd, was small. So he was the only one needed to do this tiresome work. We might think of him more like a, a gas station attendant or a janitor. His life was filled with menial tasks that nobody wanted to do, yet he did them with a spirit of devotion towards the Lord. David had received an anointing to be king, but it was a long time before that came to fulfillment. And there he was, in this desert environment, very unromantic, being a shepherd, getting on with the dirty tasks that lay before him. Because we can feel really discouraged in the normality of our life from time to time, can't we? We may go through moments when we're inspired and energized, and we're like, yeah, I can do this, I'm, I'm going to do this. But maybe, you know, Sunday evenings drawing nearer, and you get this, this knot in your stomach when you're waiting for Monday morning to come, and there's this whole list of things, this, these tasks that you have to do. And we find ourselves thinking, really, God, is this what it means to follow you? Stepping out into the cold, going to catch a bus, long commute ahead of you, and you're like, can I be bothered? Is this really what I signed up for? It's almost like the inspiration of the 5% moments dies down, and we find ourselves just needing to kind of keep going in following him. But Jesus' encouragement is, if I've given it to you to do, it's not for you, and it's not for other people, it's for me. It's an act of love, it's an act of service towards me, and he receives it like that. He gives us this amazing invitation to be faithful in the things that he's given us to do. The second key um, that this leads on to is to be open to God interruptions. So as, as we're doing that, as we're being faithful, being open to God just interrupting. Um, Simon Peter's day job got interrupted. He was washing his nets and, and Jesus comes in and um, gives him some, some advice. But when you look at the Bible, it's not just Peter. In fact, a lot of characters that we think of as these mighty men throughout the Bible, it started with an interruption to a very boring task. And I'll illustrate this. David, as we've seen, he was just watching sheep. He was a shepherd, shepherd boy. Moses was also serving his father-in-law, keeping his sheep in a desert environment when he saw the burning bush. Very similar. Joseph was asleep. Uh, Gideon was beating out wheat in a wine press, hiding from the enemy. Very boring task. Saul was looking for his dad's lost donkeys when he was called. Elisha was out plowing fields when Elijah cast his mantle over him. Nehemiah was serving drinks to the king. He was just a cupbearer, just a servant. But God honors the simple faithfulness of these individuals. Each of them experienced an interruption their routine. But what I love is that every single one was completely different how God did it. For some of them, it was a full-blown encounter with the living God, you know, a burning bush, a voice from heaven, something like that. But for some of them, it was the beginning of a discipleship relationship. When you look at 
um, Elisha and Elijah, the casting of a mantle, the beginning of those guys journeying together, and, and Elisha taking over um, the job and the calling that, that God had given to Elijah. For others like Nehemiah, it was a heart change. We've talked about that recently, how he was just doing his job, and suddenly this compassion just wells up inside of him. It's like, I've got to do something about the state of Jerusalem. The wall is broken down, and he's there doing his job, serving drinks to the king, and suddenly there's this heart change, and God arrests him and sets him on a new, a new course. In each example, it was Jesus stepping into the day-to-day routine of these guys, bringing encounter, bringing healing. In Gideon's case, it was bringing freedom from fear, bringing realignment, bringing commissioning, and God intervening. So as we're doing these faithful things that God has, has done, has given us to do, we need to be open to his interruptions. The final point that I want to talk about is ooh, embrace the awkward conversations. It sounds a bit strange, but I'll, I'll explain it. Um, throughout my teenage years, uh, Jamie was my youth leader. and I've often talked about the relationship that I've had with Jamie growing up. Um, there was one question that he would consistently ask me when I was in youth. And it was... Um, he put it like this, any lady fancies, Jeremy? And, and he would ask it again and again and again, any lady fancies? Um, and every time, for about the age of 11, all the way through youth, I would um, I'd just deny it. You know, I could, have, I could have answered the question quite well, but I'd sort of shrug my shoulders, oh, it's, yeah, it's, there's nothing. And actually, I wasn't very much to him at all. Um, in the early years. But he would keep going. He'd keep asking this question. I remember one time the moment came when God had actually been doing work in me and he asked the question again. I was much older and I knew that I had to answer the question. And I was like, I can't get out of this. I can't actually pretend anymore that you know, there's nothing really going on. And I remember sitting in his car. <laughs> he was dropping me home. And I was like clutching hold of the dashboard, just like, ah. I, I can't get the words out. Like, I know I need to answer this question. He was just laughing at me, just like, <laughs> what's going on? But I knew that God was asking me to open up this area of my life that I'd never opened up before, that nobody could see into, and I was just struggling. There was a battle going on there. Um, why was Jamie so interested in my, my love life? Was he being nosy? Maybe a little bit, I don't know. <laughs> I... I know that the reason Jamie was asking that question was because he loved me enough to ask the awkward questions, the questions where it's kind of hard to give an answer and it, and it goes into this awkward phase where you don't really know what to say. And He loved me enough to go beyond what was comfortable, what was easy, what was maybe socially expected in that context. One of the main ways that God enters our, our 95% is through relationship. It's through discipleship. As, again, referring back to, to Laura's testimony, such an amazing testimony, it's through family. It's through that closeness, that proximity. Um, <clears throat> we don't get healed or transformed or called or commissioned or anything like that by looking inward and navel-gazing. That's not what does it. Um, it's not off in a monastery somewhere or off in a cave, just us and the Holy Spirit, and suddenly you know, God encounters. That's not how it happens. It happens in the nitty-gritty of life in submission to people that God's placed in our lives to lead us. And for me, 
I guarantee the most significant moments of transformation and encounter and healing for me have happened when I've done things like opened up my finances, you know, to ask someone to help me to budget. Uh, when I've learned to drive, that was a nudge I received. You thought of learning to drive? And so I, I obeyed, and God was doing stuff through it. Opening up areas of my life that I'd locked away for no one to see. It was through these very ordinary things that don't seem spiritual, that aren't necessarily exciting from the outside, but God was using them, and he was doing something through them. We have to be willing to be open with those who love us enough to get down into the nitty-gritty, to walk alongside us through what we're going through, to get into our fishing boats, to challenge our authority, and to ask the awkward questions. There's another story that I've, um, I've shared before, but I, I want to share it again. I used to have a very old-fashioned mobile phone. Um, when you know, phones had moved on quite a bit and you know, smartphones were out and everything, but I, I still clung on to my, my old Nokia phone. And I, I thought I was being quite sort of clever and wise in doing that. I was like, oh, I don't want all of these, you know, all this functionality and it's distracting and all this kind of thing. And I was like, I just stick with my old phone. But one of the results of that was that it meant I was very uncontactable. Um, I wasn't part of like WhatsApp groups and youth planning groups and all this kind of thing. And Jamie came and, and challenged me on it once. He was like, Consider it might be time to, to get a, a new phone and you know just kind of be a bit more contactable. And I was like, oh, that's interesting, wasn't it? Wasn't expecting that. So I went away and I um, thought about it, and I thought about it some more. Um, didn't do anything about it. And Jamie caught up with me and said about a month later, he was like, yeah, Jeremy, I, I challenged you, but you've not really done anything about it. But also you've not sort of come back to me and you know said your thoughts or, or said why you're not doing anything about it. So I said, oh, really, you know, sorry, I, I, I was thinking about it, but I'll go away and I'll think about it some more. So I went away and I thought about it some more and I prayed about it as well, really holy. Um, <laughs> and more time went, <laughs> went on, but I still didn't do anything about the phone. I still have my old, my old phone. And I remember we had a, um, a conference at the time, lots of international delegates came over. And I remember I took a couple of delegates shopping on the last day before they went back. And we're going around Romford and... Um, you know, I'd, I'd been getting to know them throughout the week, and we were quite good friends. And at the end of it, when I said goodbye, they handed me a package and said, this is for you. And in the package was a brand new smartphone. And this was right off the tail of, of Jamie's conversations with me. And they didn't know anything about what he had, he had said. So God forced the issue. He forced the issue with me. I was being stubborn, and, and God was like, no, right, here you go, here's a phone. He put it on their heart to give me a phone. And these weren't people that would have necessarily had a lot of money to spend on that kind of thing, but they really blessed me with that. And I, I learned from that that I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to just go away and pray and think and, and actually not, not be active when God challenges me on something. Um, what that phone did, it, it did enable me to be more connected in with things. It meant I could play more of a role in youth leadership and, and serve and be a part of things in a whole new way. But it was a simple 95% suggestion from Jamie. Um, have you considered this? I could have been offended. I could have been, well, right, have you got to talk about my mobile phone? This is my own personal life. I've got all of these decisions about how I live my life. But he'd heard from God, and he was faithful in that. So as wonderful as, as Sunday mornings are, this is not where 
I believe the true trajectory of our life is set. I believe this is the tip of the iceberg for us. I believe the most powerful and significant moments for us happen in the 95%. It involves replacing old phones, forgiving those people that have hurt us, opening up our finances, having difficult, vulnerable conversations where you can't get the words out straight. I think it's interesting that in 2015, when the whole phone saga happened, and I had my old phone, I looked like I had it all together. You know, from the outside, I would have looked like I was doing fine. If someone asked, oh, how's Jeremy doing? Oh, yeah, he's, he's doing fine. I was a youth leader. I was right in the center of doing stuff with youth. I was right in the center of things at church. I loved God. I was praying a lot. I was seeking him a lot on my own. Um, I always had testimonies of how God was using me. But yet, in the midst of this, I was held back from accessing the fullness of what God had for me because I was being stubborn about my phone. How crazy is that? And yet it was true. It was where God has, had me. I was blind to it, completely blind. And it took Jamie to see beyond that with God's eyes. One of the new things that um, the new phone enabled me to be a part of was WhatsApp. Um, and yet, you know, it helped me with youth and different things. But also, it sparked my relationship with Jane. Um, and okay, you could say that you know, that could have happened another way. But I believe God used that phone to begin a conversation with Jane, which, you know, a little way down the line, ended up in marriage. Um, <laughs> there was something in that. I feel like it's a bit of God's sense of humor. It wouldn't have happened in quite the same way if it hadn't have been for WhatsApp. Um, and I, I like to think that on the other side of, of that decision, or lack of decision, as it was in my case, to get a new phone, God had a miracle waiting for me that I didn't, didn't know could be there. No idea that that's the kind of outcome that, that obeying in those kind of things would, would have. In a similar way, in Luke 5, Peter obeys Jesus. He casts his net again, and it releases this miracle that sets the course of his life. Jesus is waiting to perform miracles in each of our lives that don't take place in prayer ministry, but in those simple decisions that we can make in relationship with others. Jesus' involvement in the lives of his disciples, um, it was really an expression of his entire life's mission, which was to come and be where we are. Philippians 2 describes how Jesus was in the form of God, yet he gave that up to become like us, to share our humanity, to get into our boat, if you like. Let's just read Philippians quickly. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. There's this well-known phrase, we're all in the same boat. Um, which kind of means, you know, we're all in this together, we're all in the same predicament. It kind of sums up what Jesus did. We were human beings living in a fallen world, slaves to sin, restricted by all kinds of things. And God doesn't just look on us from heaven and think, oh, poor humans, I'll answer a prayer every once in a while for them. He says, no, I'm going to come down into the mess with them. I'm going to embrace humanity, even to the point 
of embracing death, which is the end result of, of our rebellion. And in doing that, I'm going to free them from its hold. And that's what Jesus does. What's the outcome? He's victorious. He's risen from the dead. Death is conquered. And he's raised above every other name. It's a beautiful moment in the Gospels when the risen Jesus appears to his disciples and they witness the fulfillment of this promise. And this is where I want to finish this morning. There are two particular stories that, that jump out to me. The first one is the road to Emmaus. Jesus comes and starts walking alongside couple of disciples that are journeying somewhere he starts chatting with them they're depressed they've just lost the person they thought was going to be their savior Um, and he's talking to them he's opening up the scriptures and they still have no idea that it's him they invite him in for dinner and he starts breaking the bread and suddenly they realize it's Jesus and he disappears and then there's this amazing story in John 21 and the disciples are out fishing again again they're depressed they don't know what to do All they can think of to do is go fishing. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. So they did. And they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water and headed to shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them. Isn't it interesting that this is the way that Jesus chose to reveal himself to his closest followers and friends as risen from the dead. Breaking bread at a dinner table and cooking breakfast on the beach. John Eldridge puts it wonderfully in his book, Beautiful Outlaw. He says, notice how casually... Jesus enters the scene. His best friends don't even know it's him. This is the resurrected Lord, mind you, ruler of heavens and earth. Think Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus could have announced his risen presence on the beach with radiant glory. He knows there is nothing in the world that would help his mates more than to see him again. He certainly could have shouted in his commanding way, it is I, the Lord, come thou unto me. He doesn't. He does the opposite. He hides himself a bit longer to let this play out. He simply stands on the shore, hands in his pockets like a tourist, and asks the question curious passers-by always do of fishermen. Catch anything? When you think about it, Jesus could have revealed himself any way he wanted. He could have done this kind of miraculous healing miracle where everyone's like, oh, it's Jesus, he's back. He could have, you know, been descending from the sky with, you know, a chorus of angels singing and trumpets, or he could have preached a sermon on a mountaintop. But instead, he shows up with any kind of, at any kind of fanfare while his followers are just going about their ordinary lives doing mundane things downcast. And this is what causes the penny to drop for them. It's not his authority and his majesty that that causes that moment of realisation. It's his taking an interest in their ordinary lives. It's the things he does in those moments in the 95%. And this is his heart. This is Jesus' heart. This is his passion towards us. He didn't rise from the dead so that we could come to a building and worship him. He raised from the dead in order to come to us in our ordinary lives. And he comes with the power to change everything. So it doesn't matter how discouraged we may be feeling when we return to Monday morning to doing what's before us to do. When the kids start playing up, when we're faced with everything on our to-do lists, because this is precisely where Jesus wants to be. So let's continue doing these three things. Faithfully serving in what God has given us to do. Being ready for those divine interruptions to our routine. And allowing others to love us into awkward conversations. And in turn, daring to return the same love to others. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm certainly not there yet. Um, 
but I can see Jesus' example in this and I want to follow him.